Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. Welcome into this Golf Channel podcast presented by Top Golf. I'm your host, Will Gray. Please be joined once again by Golf Channel analyst and occasional competitive golfer, uh, Brandel Chambly. Brandel, we're a few days out from the PGA Championship, still talking about Belle Reve and all the excitement that was going down in St. Louis. We've got the Ryder Cup on the horizon. Plenty of topics to discuss this week as, uh, as the golf season rolls right along. Thanks for joining us. Oh. Uh, it's my pleasure, Will. I'm sure we'll be talking about uh, what transpired at that PGA for the next eight months, and who knows, maybe well after that. It is always a little depressing when the PGA closes, and I guess next year it'll be the Open, and you look at the, the counter to see how many days until the Masters, and it is far too high, and in the 200-some-odd the days, and you think, man, how are we going to get from A to B? But somehow, <laughs> somehow we're going to make it, but certainly uh, Brooks Kepka's victory at Belle Reve was, was a memorable one. Would you, I mean, looking at the, the four majors this year, do you think that was the most exciting of the four? Oh, I do. Um, you know, and that's not detracting from the other three, but the fact that the most exciting player to ever play the game and arguably the best player to ever play the game, coming back from what we all know to be, you know, almost insurmountable hurdles, uh, factored into it. So that alone would have made it... Uh, the most exciting major of the year, but you know what Brooks Kepka did on top of that was uh, was worth watching as well. So we're talking about the PGA Championship at Bell Reve, and we need to start with the winner, Brooks Kepka. And, and I wanted to get your take on on this whole notion from the Kepka camp that maybe he is not getting his just due, or he's underappreciated as a major champion, or at least he was even after winning back-to-back U.S. Opens at Shinnecock Hills. Do you feel like at this point the pendulum might be swinging to the other side of things, or is this just an effective motivating tool for a guy like Brooks who clearly is able to grind it out down the stretch at majors? Yeah, well, be careful what you wish for or ask for because I doubt he'll ever again show up at a major championship flying under the radar. You know, the, the spotlight will be on him. He'll be, you know, watched closely. Uh, people will, you know, talk more fervently about his chances, uh, you know, when he plays well and when he plays poorly. Um, yeah, yeah, I'd say he did fly under the radar to some extent, but um, it was partly his and his camp's fault because he didn't do a media tour after he won the U.S. Open the first go-around or the second go-around. He just kind of disappeared for a while. Um, you know, typically when someone wins the U.S. Open, they go on a media tour through New York City and do the morning shows and do the evening talk shows, and the world gets to know them a little better. You know, there's a quote or two that's uh, associated with them that precedes them into events um, and elevates uh, their their uh, their profile. Bubba Watson did it. Uh, we talk about Bubba Watson. Jordan Spieth did it. Rory's done it. Jason Day's done it. You know, they've all sort of done it. Um, 
but I doubt he'll sneak up on us again. Certainly not with uh, three major titles. It's amazing to think that he's now on, on level footing with a guy like Jordan Spieth, who has been seen as this wonderkin for, for years, and we're already projecting him at eight, nine, ten majors, and now all of a sudden Brooks is at three, Jordan's <laughs> at three, Rory's at four, and it's, it's an interesting tussle here among uh, the next generation of, of talent. Uh, but we need to talk about the guy that finished second as well, because arguably some might say there were two winners at Bell Reve because of what Tiger was able to do coming down the stretch making birdies when he needed to on Sunday and, and doing everything he could, just coming up a little short uh, of a 15th major title. I think even after what we saw at the Open at Carnoustie, where he held the lead on the back nine on Sunday, this was still ratcheting things up a notch in terms of his ability to focus and deliver in the crunch time. What were your overall thoughts on Tiger's performance this weekend at Bell Reve and then also just kind of as a cap for his uh, season as a whole? Well, like the rest of the world, I was completely mesmerized by what Tiger Woods was doing. You know, when you when you watched Tiger play, uh, and then you watched Brooks play, though, you couldn't imagine how they could be so close because you know Brooks was hitting it 350 yards right down the middle with every swing of the club, and Tiger Woods was hitting it right and left, and right and left, and right and left, and you know it was just this Seve-esque. Uh, moment. It was probably the most Seve-esque moment of Tiger's career in that he couldn't do what he wanted to do off of the tee. So he was having to do things that, you know, nobody had ever really seen. He was having to play golf in a way that, um, yeah, I mean, we've seen him drive it poorly, but I don't know that we've ever seen him escape, you know, quite like he did there. So it was, it was very exciting golf, and it was great to see. I've said all year long that I am completely blown away by the golf that Tiger Woods is playing. I never thought I'd see him play that way again. Never thought, I, thought I'd see him, you know, be able to score, chip, and putt, um, or should I say chip and scramble around the greens the way he had. So um, it was great for Tiger. It was great for golf. Uh, and it's a, a great preamble. Um, it's a great way to, you know, put a button on this major championship uh, run, but it's also a great preamble for next year. Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, the Masters is not as close as we would like it to be, but it'll be here before we know it, and he's already one of one of the betting favorites, and, and I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to discuss his chasing a, a fifth green jacket in the coming months, but it's it's kind of remarkable when you look at the ebb and flow of, of his season. He really got a little stagnant there in the middle. You look back at the missed cut at Shinnecock Hills, where he was all out of sorts and, and wasn't exactly playing well at the Memorial, and, and do you kind of look at it as, as a situation where now he's even closer to a victory, closer to getting back to where he wants to be than maybe he even was in the spring when we saw him nearly win the Valspar and go fifth at Bay Hill? Well, I, I don't know about that. I mean, it was a perfect golf course for him to be sprinting all You know, his misses were, were so big that he was off in places where he could still you know, maneuver the golf ball off of, you know, trampled down lie, so to speak. Uh, the greens were very, very soft so that they were um, conducive to coming, you know, they were receptive even coming out of the rough. You know, I, I don't know that we'll see a major championship play quite that soft. Uh, again, you know, Tiger's great at, uh, at, at hitting his pro shots. We know that. I mean, he's one of the best ever, and he's still one of the best uh, on the PGA Tour, and that more than offsets 
um, other weaknesses that he has. But in major championships, typically you pay a bigger price for missing fairways. Uh, that was the case at uh, the U.S. Open. That was the case at the Open on the back nine for him. Um, but he didn't pay a big price for his misses at uh, the PGA Championship. And, you know, that combined with stellar iron play and phenomenal putting, um, which, you know, coming out of the rough, those soft greens, you know, his balls, his golf shots wouldn't have finished anywhere near as close to the hole on any other major championship golf course. So. These were unique circumstances. You know, he did play great. He did hit his irons great. Um, but the golf course played right into uh, that scenario. Well, you mentioned the course, and this was kind of a segue to something I wanted to pick your brain on because I know we've – I certainly have talked about it this past week on Twitter. I know you have gotten into discussions on it as well in terms of this was not a major course that we've seen in recent years and probably not one that we're going to see in the coming years. But what's the balance between – a major championship course needing to be up to a certain level in terms of architecture, in terms of performance, in terms of look, versus the ability to deliver, as Bell Reeve did, an exciting championship, a stacked and star-studded leaderboard, and a worthy champion? Well, you know, it, it's the, the golf course doesn't determine a great major championship. Uh, again, there's there's been many lackluster sort of, you know, decent golf courses, good golf courses. Um, that have produced the best major championships. You know, Valhalla is, is one from 2000. You know, if you, if you think about that, Chambers Bay was in, um, you know, wide open off of the tee and in horrid shape on the greens, and we got one of the most compelling back and forth, um, you know, in the last, who knows, 20, 30 years. Um, this golf course was extremely soft and predominantly favored one shot shape it looked like, and it gave us uh, one of the best events of the year. Think about, you know, the blowout that we've had at St. Andrews, you know, Tiger by eight, Tiger by five, Louis Tazen by by seven. Um, you know, we've, we've had, um, think about um, the blowout we had at Pinehurst uh, the last time we went there with um, Martin Keimer. You know, those are phenomenal golf courses, but, you know, I mean, it, it they're, they're more fun to play. They're more fun to look at. No question about it. But um, it's 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 rare when the golf course is the reason why, or you can actually point to the golf course as the reason why we have a great championship. Now, now the back nine at Augusta and Augusta National. Obviously, we go to the same course there every year, and and we all well know that golf course produces amazing things <clears throat> because of the strategies involved at key holes thirteen and fifteen. Uh, and thank goodness, you know, the Masters has played there because it is, um, from a strategic standpoint, one of the more interesting golf courses ever. But, uh, but it's not, it, 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 it's not an absolute that we have to go to a great golf course. There just aren't that many of them. Um, and the players, uh, they know what they're playing for, and the pressure gives us compelling storylines, and the players themselves gives us, gives us plenty of compelling storylines. One more before, uh, or on Tiger Woods, before we sort of shift subjects here. I know that certainly his comeback this year has exceeded any, any realistic expectations that I've come across. You know, we're hearing this week that Nick Faldo is saying that at last year's Masters Champions Dinner, Tiger told another Masters winner that he said, I'm done, my back is done. So it seems like even he had a level of self-awareness that he might never get back to the point where he currently sits. And it, 
generally tends to draw some comparisons to what <clears throat> Ben Hogan went through in the 1950s after the car crash, coming back and winning major championships after that. Where do you feel like the Tiger comeback stacks up versus the Hogan comeback, and does he need to win another tournament? Does he need to win a 15th major to really make that a, a fair fight? Well, you know, I would throw Tiger's, uh, well, I would say of Ben Hogan's comeback and of Babe Zaharias. Um, obviously, they were dealing with life and death situations um, that were tragic, um, illnesses and an accident. Um, you know, the illness eventually took Babe Zaharias' life, and um, the accident almost took Ben Hogan's life. So they were tragic and emotional, and, um, you know, they— they uh, just sucked the world in, no question about it. Their comebacks were, were more sentimental, no question about it, and Hollywood stuff because it was life and death. But in terms of just what they had to overcome with their golf, I'm not talking about life. I'm talking about just their golf. Um, <laughs> they pale in comparison to what Tiger Woods had to overcome. You know, we all know that most of Tiger Woods' problems were self-inflicted, but we're not comparing what they overcame so much uh, in terms of their hardship. We're just talking about what it took for them to play great golf. Um, ben Hogan was playing the best golf of his life. Um, those are his words, and certainly it's back to what he was doing when the accident occurred in 14, uh, 1949. And, you know, it was... It took him very little time once he started to get back to playing that golf, that type of golf. Very little. He wouldn't have picked up the club until the accident happened in February of 1949, and he wouldn't have picked up the club until November at the earliest. And you know, by January, he was playing as well as he ever had um, and won the U.S. Open the next year. Tiger, on the other hand, uh, would have overcome every conceivable hurdle known to man, you know, uh, embarrassment, uh, scandal, uh, uh, physical decline, just with getting older because he was older than Hogan, physical injury and the worst kind, one that prohibits you from moving. Um, I'm not talking about legs, um, you know, which are sore, you know, clearly Hogan could walk. We, we have, you know, we, we could see that. Um, Tiger couldn't rotate, couldn't move, couldn't sit down. Um, uh, emotional stress, and then the psychological stress of having pinballed all over the place with his short game. So, you know, when you put all those together, uh, you know, I, I would say, um, the way I look at it, that Tiger Woods' comeback was um, more unlikely. The golf that he played was more unlikely than the golf that once Hogan didn't die, you know, once his bones healed up, you know, his golf was not a surprise to anybody. Um, you know, him living may have been a surprise, but the golf wouldn't have surprised people. Uh, but Tiger's golf surprises everybody. Every single thing he's doing surprises everybody. The whole world watched him fat and blade chips for the better part of a year every time he played, um, a year and a half. So we all thought he was done as well. Well, I want to turn our attention now to uh, Paris, because with all due respect and no disrespect to our friends in Pontevedra, there is not currently a countdown to 
Eastlake. Everyone is counting down the days until the Ryder Cup when we get this thing back underway at Le Golf Nacional, and it's going to be a great event for sure. But I want to look at now, we've got eight Americans that are locked in on the 12-man roster. We've got four picks coming up from Jim Furyk. So let's get a premise out of the way. Do you agree <coughs> with the notion that Tiger and Phil are both locks to be among that first three-pack of picks from Jim Furyk after the playoff event in Boston? Yes, I do. Okay. Um, first of all, you know, there's there's just no way you could leave Tiger off because of his, his most recent golf. Um, you know, who else, if you combined what he did at the Open and the PGA Championship, has played better? Uh, you put those two events together. Uh, you know, I mean, Molinari, but Molinari can't be picked. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, Tiger Woods should be on the team from what he's done this year. Um, you know, and Phil narrowly missed uh, making the team for the 12th straight time, which is mind-boggling achievement. But when you consider what Phil's going to bring to that team in terms of um, the locker room banter um, and knowledge and experience, um, there's just no way you can leave Phil Nicholson off of that team. You know, you could you could you could argue you could look at the golf course and say, well, he doesn't drive it straight enough for for that golf course. But if you get him into, you know, I, you know what's he going to play? He's going to play best ball. You know, he's going to play four ball. Uh, he'll probably play with one of the other picks that they're going to make, and Kevin Kisner, uh, assuming Kevin plays decent over the next, you know, couple of weeks. Um, yeah, they're they're definitely locked. Um, I can't imagine that that Furyk would go any other way with those two players. Well, you mentioned Kisner, and that was kind of where I was heading. Now, we remember that he's Furyk has four picks. He's saving the fourth pick for after the BMW, so you assume that that's going to go to a player that kind of heats up over these first three playoff events. But looking at those first three picks he makes after Boston, if Phil is one, if Tiger is another, how do you handicap the contenders for that third pick? Well, you know, with Kisner – played with Phil at the President's Cup, uh, and they were undefeated. Uh, they, they played beautifully. And Kisner just led the field in driving, actually, the PGA Championship, which, you know, I, he finished 12, so he played wonderful as well. He had the 54-hole lead at the uh, Open Championship. So, you know, Kisner's a pretty easy pick when you look at that golf course, uh, which, by all accounts, the Europeans are going to uh, grow the rough, narrow the fairways, because they think they have an advantage over the United States in terms of driving accuracy, and they do, and they do with the familiarity of the golf course as well. So the United States will need to have a few players that can drive the eyes out of it. And Kisner's the, the obvious pick. Um, you know, Kyle Stanley is another one, um, and 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 I'm sure Furyk has got Kyle Stanley on his radar, but Kyle Stanley, you know, doesn't have a history with Bill Mickelson, which. You know, Phil's a tough guy to pair up. You know, not too many people, um, <clears throat> you know, can play the type of golf that Phil has played or does play or um, can mesh with well with him. And, and already having kids um, fill that role, it'd be tough to ignore. And then one more, I want to kind of switch to the other side because just like Furyk has four picks, Thomas Bjorn is going to have four picks as well. And I think the interesting case study right now is Sergio Garcia, who has been a stalwart on the European Ryder Cup team for nearly two decades and has struggled to find his form for the last several months. Looking at 
at a situation where Bjorn is going to probably have to pick Henrik Stenson. He's going to have to pick either Paul Casey or Ian Poulter. Do you feel like Sergio is a lock to make it as a pick in France? I don't know if Sergio's a lock. I listened to Ken Schofield at the uh, PGA Championship make the case for every night, and, he, and Ken made a beautiful case for him, uh, and he just about had me convinced. But, you know, your job as captain to pick players that can help you win. And, you know, okay, you can say that, you know, a player may bring something to a team room, but if a player is so completely out of sorts with his game, um, I don't think he's going to be that up in the team room. He's not going to give you know, the kind of aura that you like, um, especially somebody who is emotionally, um, you know, prone to highs and lows like Sergio Garcia that, that follow his good and bad golf. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not completely sold on Sergio. You know, he recused himself of being picked back in 2010. Um, it wouldn't completely surprise me if he did the same for this one. So I, I'm not sold at all that Sergio is going to be on this team. And I think he's probably giving Thomas Bjorn um, a bit of a mare when he goes to bed at night. <laughs> we shall see. It's going to be a couple weeks from now. Uh, it seems a lot of conjecture right now, but a couple more weeks, and we'll have 12 versus 12, and, and the true speculation can really begin. But when it comes down to it, I mean, I know it's tough to say when you don't know the full rosters, but you said that you know the European side are going to be able to control some of the course elements. The U.S. side clearly had a convincing victory at Hazeltine a couple of years back. As it stands right now, who do you make as the favorite entering the Ryder Cup? Europe, uh, you know, I mean, they're very close on paper. Um, eight and a half, I think, was the last world rank I saw for the eight that were chosen by the United States and um, that, or that were made it for the United States and, and right at the European side. Um, but again, as Ken Schofield pointed out numerous times, the world rankings kind of go out the windows. Um, you know, we've seen that a number of times. You know, what what is important is is the job that the captains do, and then who has the home course, home country advantage, which is worth almost three points. Uh, historically speaking, if you start to look at what teams do when they're home and away, it's a, it's right at three points. So, <laughs> you know, and the familiarity that the uh, Europeans have with this golf course and the fact that they're able to set it up for the strengths of their players, and they will do a very good job of knowing the weaknesses of the U.S. side and knowing the strengths of their side and specifically setting the golf course up uh, accordingly. So, you know, it, it, it's likely to come down to, you know, the, the last match and the singles, but, but I'd give a slight edge right now to the Europeans. We will let you uh, get out of here on this one. This is the first time that we've had you back on the Golf Channel podcast since you crashed the party and qualified for the Senior Open, which was uh, a very remarkable achievement, certainly fun to track from this side of things. But uh, to, to let you out here, let's get one memorable moment from your week at St. Andrews, competing once again on the old course. And then also, does this mean we're going to get to see more Brandel Chambly inside the ropes in 2019 and beyond? Well, yeah, it was, it was a big thrill for me to qualify for the Senior Open at St. Andrews, uh, you know, to get back in golf to get back in golf that way was special and it was it was <clears throat> it was uh, it was a treat you know it was an absolute joy you know there is no place in the world golf 
shall see it's uh it's going to be very interesting to to watch we certainly look forward to more opportunities to uh to track you and, and watch you inside the ropes uh moving forward but brandel chamblee as always a great pleasure to have you on the podcast to talk a variety of topics the the season is winding down but there's still plenty more uh to keep our attention thanks so we'll always love to talk to you um yes you're right uh, look forward to the Ryder cup the fedex cup um the season not done yet. We'll still have plenty to talk about in the next uh, couple of months. The golf world and calendar keeps on spinning. Doesn't matter what what part of the year we're in. But uh, thanks again to Brandel. Uh, again, I'm your host Will Gray. This has been the Golf Channel podcast presented by Top Golf. Remember, you can get access to our podcasts and and those we've had previously with Brandel as well at golfchannel.com/podcast. Uh, go to your favorite podcast provider: Apple, Stitcher, Art19, Google Play. Search Golf Channel podcast and subscribe. Feel free to leave a rating in a review. Tell your friends. Again, thank you very much, Brandel Chamblee. I'm your host, Will Gray. This has been a Golf Channel podcast presented by Topgolf. We'll see you next time. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939.